Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I'm honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Kimberly Sackheim, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at New York University Langone Medical Center. Dr. Sackheim, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. As a post-traumatic headache specialist, she has a focus on interventional pain management of chronic headache. She is board certified by the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation with subspecialties in both pain management and brain injury medicine. Her medical degree is from the Nova Southeastern University College of Osteopathic Medicine. She completed her residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Broward General Medical Center in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Postdoctoral training took place at the Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, and she also had an anesthesia-based fellowship in interventional pain medicine, hospice, and palliative care at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, again in New York City. So what inspired your interest in treating patients with headache of all the different kinds of things you could do in a medical practice? Why this particular focus? So I was fortunate enough that during my pain fellowship, there was a neurology headache specialist that had been hired that year. And I got the chance to work with him a little bit and learn about headache. And I found it very, very interesting. And I started involving it in my practice when I graduated. I didn't do a lot of headache at that time. But then a few years later, when I joined NYU, Rusk Rehabilitation, where they have a concussion center, I started seeing more and more headache complaints, post-traumatic headache, neck pain, jaw pain, and facial pain, which is all linked to this headache conundrum. And there weren't a lot of doctors who could help these patients. So I started getting more and more into this. An interesting aspect of healthcare is forecasting. How effective are headache forecasting models in accurately predicting future headache activity and to what degree are they employed in clinical practice? So right now, forecasting models need to be refined. They have shown that they can help predict occurrences depending on patients' level of stress or the way that they deal with stress. We know that certain people are at greater risk of having a migraine attack versus another person depending on their level of stress and how they perceive stress because two people might have the same amount of stress, and one person might perceive it differently where their body has a different reaction than the other person, which is more likely to precipitate a headache attack. So when they do have predictive models, it does allow for patients to preemptively try to treat their headaches, which we know if we treat a headache sooner in the beginning when it starts, 
a person is more likely to respond to the treatment available or medication or whatever treatment they're using. You touched upon the next question, so I'll just ask you to expand it a little bit. Are there any other situations in a patient's life that serve as useful forecasts of the onset of a headache, such as fatigue or sleep deprivation? And if so, can the awareness of these conditions lend themselves to prevention-oriented interventions? So this question makes me think about all of the headache triggers, and the triggers vary greatly with each individual patient. Patients can have inner triggers like stress or reacting to things, and they can have outer triggers like certain foods. Specifically for post-traumatic headache, I do see that reading, working, sitting at a computer, bright lights, or watching TV can be triggers for these patients. But in addition to all of those, post-traumatic headache patients can have the same triggers that a migraine patient could have. And those triggers include certain foods, such as cheeses, anything that is pickled, chocolate, even peanut butter is known to be a trigger. Gluten found in certain breads can be inflammatory. Certain preservatives like MSG that is found in soy sauce and certain meat tenderizers. Also, caffeine can be a headache trigger, but can also help headaches. So when people have excessive amounts of caffeine, that can actually lead to a headache. Going back to food preservatives, there are also nitrates and nitrites in certain foods, and these are known to dilate blood vessels which can cause headaches. So migraine, we know, has to do with the dilation of blood vessels. So certain foods such as sausage or pepperoni or hot dogs do contain nitrates or nitrites. And specifically red wine, which contains sulfites, which is a preservative in red wine, can significantly precipitate or exacerbate a headache. In general, alcohol can lead to dehydration, which can precipitate a headache, as well as increased blood flow to the brain, which also can precipitate a headache. So minimizing alcohol is a good way to decrease headache exacerbations. And then overall, hormonal changes in women can lead to headaches, not getting proper sleep, or changes in a sleep-wake pattern can lead to headaches, such as maybe jet lag flying out of the country. Also, stress. Stress is one of the largest known components to contribute to migraine headaches and headaches in general. A lot of patients are sensitive to light and sound. So being in environments like that with a bright lights or loud sounds can significantly increase their headache. Well, thank you for a comprehensive answer, particularly on the food aspect of headaches, and I'm sure it should be of great interest to our listeners. Now, certain things, for example, if every time you had a piece of chocolate, you developed a headache, you might catch on that you probably shouldn't be eating chocolate, but some of the other things that you mentioned, you may not be ingesting them too frequently and would never make the connection that somehow a nitrate in a particular food you rarely eat is now causing a headache. So really, thank you for that answer. What degree do pre-existing conditions, such as mood disorders, influence the onset of a headache, and how can that be managed? 
Mood disorders, I think, play a very large role in headache patients. So we already know that people who have a personal history of headache or a family history of headache are at higher risk of developing headache. Even if they have a post-traumatic headache, a patient who had a previous headache or a family history of headache is also more likely to develop a post-traumatic headache. And patients who are not very good at monitoring or controlling their bodily responses to stressful environments that get more likely to have anxiety or depression are more likely to have pain exacerbations in general, as well as headache exacerbations. Also, sometimes patients who have mood disorders may be more likely to overuse medications, which can lead to side effects as well as medication overuse headache on its own. And when talking about other pre-existing conditions, you know, females are more likely to have headaches. Younger patients between 25 and 35 are more likely to have headaches. And patients who are overweight with a BMI greater than 30, where the normal BMI is usually under 25, 18 to 25, greater than 30 can increase the risk of chronic daily headache. Please describe any diagnostic challenges involved when patients present with both headache and neck pain. So this is something I see every day. And a lot of times, specifically post-traumatic headache patients have neck or cervical components that are missed completely or undiagnosed because their other brain injury complaints are so much more severe that the neck component is totally ignored. Headache alone has significant diagnostic challenges. It is a very, very common complaint. Over 25% of patients presenting to a general neurologist are complaining of headache. And headache, specifically migraine, is underdiagnosed and undertreated. Unfortunately, there is no confirmatory test. There's nothing seen on a CAT scan or an MRI or an X-ray. They're all normal. There is no lab test. All of the lab tests are normal unless someone has a specific dangerous type of headache like a giant cell arteriitis, which can have elevated lab values for inflammation. So it's really important to know how to take a very good detailed history of these patients so that you can get the right diagnosis, as well as understanding how to perform a proper physical exam on these patients. When incorporating the cervical component, you know, there can be something called a cervicogenic headache, which means that something is going on in the neck that is leading to headache. So this person might not necessarily have a tension headache or a migraine, they might just have a cervicogenic headache. So let's say they have a herniated disc or arthritis or muscle spasms in their neck that are causing headache. There is also something called occipital neuralgia. And the greater occipital nerve is a nerve that lies at the back of the head. And oftentimes, when a patient has a cervical issue, this can lead to irritation of that nerve which can cause pain at the back of the head that can radiate to the top or sides of the head, which can be a totally different type of headache on its own. And each type of headache is treated differently. So it's important to understand 
which type of headache the patient has so that you can treat it effectively. And then even more complicated is some patients can have more than one type of headache. So just because someone has a migraine doesn't mean that they don't have a cervicogenic headache, which is superimposed, or a tension headache superimposed on that. Earlier, you mentioned a traumatic brain injury, or TBI. Are individuals who end up being hospitalized due to a head injury more likely to have a new onset of headaches and even a worsening of pre-existing headache and persistent headache? Definitely patients that have a history of pre-existing headache or a family history of headache are more likely to develop headache after a brain injury. Um, and more likely to have a persistent headache. I do personally see most of my post-traumatic headache patients are mild brain injury patients. So not all mild brain injury patients are hospitalized after their accident. They may not even have a loss of consciousness, and they may just have a time where they are confused or where they have a small amount of memory impairment So not every patient who has persistent severe headache after an injury has to be hospitalized. And sometimes I even see, and this is not established in the literature, but sometimes I even see that people with more severe brain injury, they have a lot of other issues that are more important than their headaches. Head injuries may lead to depression and anxiety, for example. What role do these conditions play in the development of headaches, and do such pre-existing disorders serve as suitable intervention targets? So, for sure, patients with head injuries can have depression and anxiety. They're at higher risk of mood disorders in general, but also patients who just have pure headaches without an injury, are at higher risk of depression, anxiety, and mood disorders. So when I treat a patient with headache, whether it's post-traumatic or not, I always take pre-existing disorders into account when prescribing a certain treatment. So if someone has severe anxiety, they may be best to have a behavioral treatment so that they can learn to control their body more and have less anxiety, which is leading to a headache. But also medications that treat anxiety and depression can also help patients with headache. So SSRIs, SNRIs, tricyclic antidepressants, anticonvulsants, these are all medications that can help not only headache, but also depression and anxiety. How effective are botulinum toxin injections in treating patients who experience chronic tension-type headaches or any other kinds of headaches? So botulinum toxin is FDA-approved for chronic migraine. And in order to have chronic migraine, you have to have 15 or more headache days in a month with some of the headaches lasting greater than four hours at a time or more. And eight of the 15 headache days in that month have to be related to a migraine. And migraines are associated with either nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light, and sometimes sensitivity to sound as well. So botulinum toxin can only be used for chronic migraine. Now, a lot of these patients do have superimposed other headache symptoms. So they can have tension headache. They can have cervicogenic headache. 
They may have jaw pain, which I see in a lot of my patients with headache. When we categorize a patient who's going to get botulinum toxin, they have to, number one, have chronic migraines. But if they have other things as well, it may be beneficial. Specifically for my practice, I have seen a significant impact with the botulinum toxin injections. They are much more effective for patients with pure migraine, but I do see them effective in patients with post-traumatic headache who have migraine features, which like I said before, would be nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light or sound. The company did a trial called the Preempt trial, where after five treatment cycles of the botulinum toxin, they saw a significant decrease in the number of headache days in the patients, the severity of the headaches, and a decrease in the amount of emergency room visits, which is really important because that can decrease the medical spending of headache in general. And I have seen some response to patients who have superimposed tension headache, superimposed neck pain, because part of the spots that are injected for botulinum toxin treatment are the trapezius muscles, and that can be significantly affected in all types of headache patients. Please describe the role of peripheral nerve blocks in treating headaches. So for my practice, peripheral nerve blocks have a significantly positive effect for these patients. Number one, a lot of patients don't like to take medications. So a small injection of a numbing agent around a nerve that may be hyperfiring or causing pain for this patient is a simple, easy thing to do, and they don't have to take any medications. Peripheral nerve injections can be done at multiple areas in the face and head. We know that the trigeminal nerve is very closely linked to headache in general. So there are branches of the trigeminal nerve in our face and head. There is a supraorbital nerve above our eyebrows that can cause pain above our eyes into our forehead, which is a common area of headache complaint. There is the auriculotemporal nerve, which is at our temple above our ear. And most patients who have headache have pain in that area as well. We also have an infraorbital nerve, which is below our eye, which can cause pain below our eye around the upper part of our lip, which I see less commonly, but that can also be a part of a patient's headache complaint. And all of these nerves can be simply blocked in the office with just numbing medicine. We don't use steroids, so there's not a harm of the side effects of steroids. We can also block the occipital nerve, which is in that, the back of the head. And peripheral nerve blocks, because we only use numbing medicine, they can be repeated. Most patients I see can have relief from three to six weeks after these nerve blocks, which is a significant change in a person's headache symptoms, especially these people who have headache symptoms every day. So even if they get a small percent of decrease for three to six weeks, it is a humongous difference in the quality of their life and the ability for them to function. If I do a peripheral nerve block and it only helps for a day, obviously I would be less likely to repeat it, but most of my patients, I do see long-lasting results at least up to four weeks. 
Dr. Sackheim, I'm going to conclude part one of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners regarding the treatment of patients who experience headache pain. A second part of this interview will be made available on a separate occasion, and our listeners are invited to access it also. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.